Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumphs, and tragedy as I continue to trace my steps backward and ponder what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. If you're ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, or simply listen, and tie, buckle, slip on, or lace up your shoes, and join me as we begin our A Thousand Tiny Steps. Hey, everybody. Barb Higgins here welcoming you to episode 77 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. Since I've recorded the last episode, I've had some Zoom issues, so hopefully this recording will go okay. And I've had a lot of emotional sort of reactions to retelling my story. When you put yourself back into any experience that you've had, positive or negative, you feel all of those emotions. So when I look back on, you know, a year and a half of podcasting, when I was talking about Jack and that whole experience, I relived all that euphoria and all the unknown and all the excitement. You know, you relive these things and you and you experience what you remember. Likewise, when you relive things that were painful, you walk around sort of in that reality. I remember when we were thick in the middle of the lawsuit, all we were talking about was what could have kept Molly alive. So every conversation that we reiterated described an occurrence that happened when she was alive. And so it allows the traumatized brain to believe that she's alive. It wasn't until we settled the lawsuit that all of us really had the reality that Molly was truly never coming back. Unless you've experienced a really significant trauma, I think this is a very hard thing for people to comprehend because on an intellectual level, you know, I knew, I knew from the moment Dr. Luther said those three words, we're too late, and that she was gone. You just know these things. But it doesn't mean in a traumatized reality in your heart of hearts, and you're pleading with the universe to change the reality and the truth that you don't somehow believe that she's alive. So there's that. And I'm getting into a period of time in my life that when I look back on it now, I just wonder how so much of it could have occurred. Not just on my part, but on everyone's part, on Kenny's part, on Roy's part, on Amy's part, on the school district's part, and all of those people, on Robin's part, all the people in my life that I was connected to during this time. I think sometimes how, how could these things, how could that reality have continued for the number of years it did? It's an interesting, an interesting story. And as usual, before I get into the thick of the storytelling, a couple of update things. I've been a guest now on two more podcasts, I think since I recorded last time. One is called Label Free, and that is an amazing podcast out of Chicago. It's, a, it's on a very large scale. She just interviews people, 20-minute episodes. She does quick interviews with people that have done amazing things or crazy things or unique things. You know, she posts several a week. She's amazing. She's a machine. We had a wonderful time. Her name is Deanna. I also recorded a smaller one, and I might have already said this, but I don't think so. It's called Introducing Me, and it's the same type of thing, but a much smaller scale. This woman's name is Sarah, and she just interviews people, and you tell your story. Her whole podcast is other people's stories. I'll be coming up soon on a couple of others, on things that make you go, and on legacies and legends. And they'll come up, they'll be coming up sometime in February, March. So I'm excited for when I start to host guests. I've already sort of started crafting the list in my head and I'm just excited about it. It makes for a really interesting and, and unique experience. This podcast will air right around the 21st of February. So it'll still be February when this is coming out. So happy end of February. I'm going to an event in March. It's a group called Women in Good Company, like an online entrepreneurial group. And 
And the woman that runs it, her name is Lisa. She does this amazing job of getting people together. She does these amazing dinners or just, you know, a little garden party to get together. So I've been to two of them now. One was at her home and one was unbelievable historic farmhouse in Ipswich. And the next one is coming up at this beautiful antique home in Amesbury. And it's going to be this wonderful dinner. So if you're listening to me and you live, you know, within an hour or two of the North Shore of Massachusetts, and you're an online entrepreneur, this would be a fun thing for you. You know, it's not an inexpensive evening. It's right around $170, I think. But all the food you can eat, this amazing ambiance. And we're going to meeting, you know, usually there are 50 or 60 people anyway at these things who all do amazing things. And there are men there as well. It's not just women. But the female entrepreneur is the focus of her support group, not support group, but her community. And you just meet these wonderful people. So when you think of dinner, drinks, a movie, and home, you spend that much money. You know, it's not inexpensive to go out anymore. I have a link in my blog, on this week's blog, which is today's February 11th. On to the story. So my last week's episode, before I send these off to my editor, I listen again because sometimes they feel very jumbled. I think that one was probably challenged to be edited. But my biggest thing when I look back on it now is how quickly time can change. It's the whole premise around my lesson in health class, A Thousand Tiny Steps, that we don't just suddenly make a decision and end up somewhere, even if it feels that way. Like Molly's death was like a brick to the face. How did I get here? And now that we're coming up on almost seven years since she died, I see so many red flags that I didn't see when I was in the reality of living it. So it came as a surprise. And this story is the same way. I feel I just notice all these things. But when I look back at the summer of 2009, when Roy came back into my reality, it was finishing up one of the best school years professionally I had had. I had I had really succeeded at this at this sabbatical. And I know that I was granted the sabbatical because I did a good job reapplying for it. I worked full-time the second semester of my sabbatical year, January to June at halftime pay. I taught halftime and was paid for that. And I completed my sabbatical. All of those hours were volunteer hours on my part, but I was committed to the sabbatical and I still am. And I think it will now reframe itself. What I noticed the most in looking back is July of 2009, was this amazing, amazing July. I had extricated myself from an unhealthy relationship. My relationships in my life were healthy ones. My neighborhood was solid and happy. Gracie and Molly were happy. Financially, although not, my tax issues with Kenny were as bad as ever, I made good money and had good health insurance. So we were stable. We were able to, to get by. Nothing was terribly wrong. Was I happy? Not in my marriage, no. Happy marriages don't have these things happen. A year later, July of 2010, I knew that I now had an unbelievably stressful life. I had been granted a medical leave for the last four weeks of, of the school year because the school could see I wasn't right. What they didn't know that 90% of why I wasn't right was this, this relationship with Roy. Not feeling guilty about the affair. Let me be clear. I was in love with Roy and I felt like we all do justified in that aspect of my behavior. Did I feel guilty? Yes, of course. I would come home. And I would see Gracie and Molly and I would see the, what looked like to everyone else, a happy family, a beautiful home. Those things I maintained and were okay. My finances weren't good, but the one thing I had changed was diving into helping Roy in his divorce. And I dove into testifying and sitting with his attorney and sharing everything, the reality of what had actually gone on the year that Roy was away and not what the attorneys believed and what Amy's attorney was trying to push as true. She had painted Roy as a child molesting monster. 
That was what he was painted at. Amy was happy to have him look that way, to get what she felt she wanted. And what she wanted was every sort of personal belonging that Roy had. Their house was full of beautiful furniture, paintings, artwork, homemade beds, and carved cabinets, all these beautiful things that Roy brought into the marriage. His dining room set was from his first marriage. You know, these were the realities. And these were things that Amy truly felt she should be able to keep and that she carted off to her new home. And so I worked very hard to rectify this. I also felt very strongly because I believed Roy. I believed him that his kids would be better off with him in his life. Now his kids, Morgan is his only legal child at the time. Teresa was still, you know, legally another person's child. And so I spent that year motivated. I remember having a big fight with Kenny and I said, my motivation for being connected with Roy is those children. I love them. They spent hours in our house. They were a part of our family. Even Kenny, knowing in his heart of hearts that I wasn't being honest with him, that something else was going on, also cared for those kids and also understood that if those kids were his kids, he would want somebody fighting. So I'm a year later now. I'm entering July. I went to a dance competition in the beginning of July 2010 that was in Providence, Rhode Island. I spent a ton of time with Roy, enjoying Fourth of July. It was incredible. But came home and that was really, truly when things started to blow up. I can't tell this whole story in one episode. So I'm just going to talk about the first few months up until getting suspended from my job. So when I got back from the dance competition and returned home, there was all this testimony going on in Concord around the demolition of Kimball School and Conant School. Conant wasn't the architectural gem that Kimball was, but still it was a historic building that really didn't need to be torn down. The facade of Conant could have remained and they could have, they could have restructured and rebuilt parts of it. Two really ridiculous looking schools exist. Now that's just how I feel about it. You look at them and you're just puzzled. So at the time, you know, Roy is very, very big into historical buildings and beautiful old homes. It's why he loved the Victorian that they lived in in Concord. He's very, very committed. And, and he said to me, you need to speak out against these. You need to speak out. Now, as a district employee, you have to be careful when you're speaking out against a project that's being run by your current superintendent. But I just, as I've said before, if I could look at Roy's face and see him proud of me and see him look at me, he just had this look on his face. It was like a smile. It was just a look of adoration and my insecure ego mind loved it. I loved it. When he looked at me that way, I just felt, can't even describe it now. Mostly it makes me feel stupid, but he really, really felt that I should speak out against the demolition of these schools. And so I did. I went to two different hearings to speak out against the building. And I just spoke, it was unnecessary to tear these buildings down. It was not necessary to demolish these buildings and that we could think of other ways to do it. There were other pieces of property. And he would be so, he would sit there listening to me talk and I would come back and sit down. He would just be like, yes. I spoke out twice and I started a Facebook page, the Historic West End. And, and I talked about all the ways that we could, you know, tear down the Morrill School building, which is right next to Kimball and build the new into the old and all this. And of course, it was far too late. It was going to happen. The district had purchased like several beautiful Victorian homes in that neighborhood and then stopped renting them, just fell into disrepair. And that now they could say, well, these buildings, these homes are too old to repair. And they were beautiful, beautiful homes, a Greek revival home, two or three classic Victorian homes, you know, really, really heart-wrenching, beautiful homes that, you know, are gone forever now. And so I did this, not knowing that I was taking the risk. And I remember after one time speaking at one public hearing, Chris Rath was glaring at me and I put my hand on her arm and I said, thank you for creating a community in which I can speak my mind as a citizen and still be a meaningful part of the district. Not knowing 
that something was brewing at this time. So shortly after those hearings, I was actually at Roy's house and a school teacher friend of mine, I was in my car and he was out there and he saw me and waved me down. He goes, hey, I heard you lost your job. I just want to apologize. And I'm like, excuse me, I didn't lose my job. What? And this is a person that taught at an elementary school teacher at Kimball and and I didn't know what he meant. Clearly that word was around him. I got a phone call from a retired teacher who heard the same thing. I just was put off by it, but I didn't really think anything. So now we're getting into the month of August. And so I get a phone call that Chris Rath wants to meet me at the high school immediately. And now again, here's where I choose to freeze. I talked about this in season three or four, I think, when I was talking about trauma. I freeze. I don't fight for myself. I don't defend. I don't go in with my best defense as a good offense. I just don't. And so what I should have done is called my union rep and said, I'm being called into a meeting with Chris Rath and Gene Connolly. Would you come with me? I didn't even think to do it. I went by myself. I didn't have a building rep. I had nothing. And I sat there and they just didn't look at me like two people I knew. You know, Chris Rath was my college advisor, grad school advisor. And Gene had been a close, close piece of my life since they moved to Concord. He's the reason I even taught at the high school. So I sat down and the first thing Chris Rath says to me is, you will not say a word to me. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear what you have to say. And the first words out of her mouth are Amy. I just sat there stunned. And what she said was that she had brought public email where I harassed her, that she had to get a restraining order against me. And I did all this on public email. Well, the truth of the matter was no one had a restraining order. She didn't have one against me. She never went for one. At that time, she hadn't. What she had was all the documentation that the Kimball School principal at the time had told me to keep on public email because it would always be public. So doing what I was told was now really backfire. I also talked about letting Amy keep all the emails because I kept hers. Hindsight tells me I should have just collected it back. She wouldn't have had it. and She wouldn't have had it to use against me. So that was one of those moments where things were clicking in my head, but I was paralyzed. I just sat there. So I started sobbing. I just started sobbing and I apologized. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize. And I tried to say, she's been harassing my family. I went to court to protect myself from her. And again, Chris Rath didn't want to hear it. She did not want to hear it. She didn't care at this point. She just didn't care. And she also brought up that these weren't the only ones that she had done some research and the things that I had used public email for were completely wrong. And she could fire me right then for misuse of public email. And I just sat there like mortified and feeling like I was going to get fired. And all I could do was apologize and apologize. And so that's all I did. I just apologized. And when I left, I did think to call my union rep, Kimberly, to say, this just happened to me. And so from then on, I wasn't supposed to have meetings that didn't have union reps in them. I came home and I was, I was just a mess. And of course, I said nothing to Karen, but I did call Roy right away. I just thought he would be much more like supportive of me. He was, he felt bad, as bad as he would ever feel about anything. But he mostly belittled me for not fighting back more. I'm like, well, why didn't you stand up for yourself? And you know, if you, if you let them walk all over you, they're going to. And that, that is not at all what I need to hear at the time because I already felt walked all over. I didn't know what to do, but that was really the beginning of the end for me, really knowing that things weren't right. So that was probably the first week of August. So then having already gone through this, I get called in, called by Jean Connolly, come up to the high school. It's no big deal. It's not a big meeting. I just wanted you to come up. And so I go up thinking it's just him and it's he and Steve Mello. And this is about mid-August before practice started. And he sat down and he said, look, we want you to take the season off from coaching. And I'm like, what? 
what, why? And I'm like, I don't want to not coach. That's like my grounding. And he said, we don't, we think of it this way. We don't want you to come back too fast. Now, hindsight tells me I should have just said, but I'll teach half time and I'll coach. And then I won't be coming back. But I just sat there again at the very same table, just sort of in stunned silence. Like what, what? And then he says to me, you have a lot going on. You have that family. You know, Chris says you're having an affair with Roy. So now my superintendent has told my principal that I'm having an affair with Roy. And now the super, the athletic director is sitting in on this as well. And I can't read him at the time. He won't make eye contact. He's just sort of looking at Jean and looking down. And I'm stunned. What should I have done at that moment? I'm my union rep. I should have said, stop. I'm not doing anything until I have a union rep. But because it's cross country coaching and everything else, I just didn't think about it. So I agreed. I said, okay, I'll take a season off. I was entering my 21st year of coaching. What was I thinking? And we have someone all set up, you know, and then Vince Giss is going to take over for you. It's going to be great. And I remember Ember, who I named Gracie after, Ember Smith, Ember Stokes, was teaching at Broken Ground at the time. And she walked out because she was just frantically worried about me and wondering what was happening to me. So I go home and I'm like, okay, I'm not coaching. Okay, that's the money I used to pay my mother. And so what am I doing here? Like, what, what am I doing? Why did I give that up? Well, looking at Chris, Chris Rath, she really stabbed me to death before because what she did, she just kept whittling away at everything she knew that would make me feel stable. This is a very, very sort of covert form of gaslighting where these things are happening, but not in front of you or not with words, but with sort of things. She knows, no, I go to the year and, you know, New England champs and everything else. She knows. And what was more important to her at the time was taking me out of the equation. Because I know now she was planning on doing everything she did all fall. She could get rid of me. Horrifying, horrifying reality. So I go home and I tell Kenny, I'm, I'm taking this season off from coaching. And he's like, what? Like none of this was making any sense. And I said this to Roy. And it's, he, it was the same sort of say, what? Are you kidding me? So there we go. So we start the school year. So I thought to myself, I knew right now at this point that I had to prove that I was doing okay, that I was solid. So I stopped wearing like, I wore a dress to school every day. I went right into the main office and said, good morning, every day. I was on time every day. I was never late. And that was oftentimes, I just started thinking of all the little nitpicky things that could go wrong. I was teaching these two other classes. And of course, as usual, the teacher that used to teach them took every bit of curriculum with him when he left. So I had nothing, no curriculum by which to teach these classes. Which I also think this time around was, was purposeful. Gene knew that this had happened to me before with the same teacher at Russell. And I think he knew and probably told him because he was hired to replace me. So that was happening. So I just was vigilant. I was getting my correcting done. I was, I was teaching really good classes, never being late. About a week into school, I went down to Lisa Lamb. She was the, the secretary. And she and I was sort of the homecoming together because it was varsity club and senior class. And she went, oh, we've taken that off your plate for you. You're not varsity club advisor anymore. And I said, why? I don't know what to not be. Like, what? And again, Jean was like, not real. Don't be upset. We're doing it for you. We really want you to just focus on your job and work. We don't want to overwhelm. And again, Lisa participated in a nasty way in my job while she made up a giant lie, which she put to paper, which I'll get to. So now that I know that they were, I just think they were in on this and it's horrifyingly heart-wrenching. The worst part of it for me is I really thought at this time that Roy was on my side. And I firmly now believe, because he was also a big component of me making sure the school district letterhead was on my emails. I now really feel that he was not surprised at all that all of this was happening. I think his mind was that once I lost everything, I would have no choice but to go to him. I know that sounds backwards, 
And he will deny that to the hills. But knowing what I know now about behavior and the research I've done and really paying attention to what, what happened to me, what have happened to other women in relationships like this, and quite frankly, in relationships with Roy, I see it now. I just see it. And it's terrifying because it's too late. I can't go back and fix it. I can't undo what was done. Now I'm going to school every day. I'm going to every single, I put myself on a committee for competencies. I never missed a staff meeting, which I used to miss because of coaching. I was a health and PE was all one group. Now I was the only health teacher now. Julie's job was eliminated. Amy's job was eliminated. It was two full-time health teachers. And then this year that was my bad year, I was the only one. And then the PE people would, would teach health. So now they were coming up into my classroom and teaching health. And of course, they didn't use any of the wonderful curriculum that I created in my sabbatical, nothing. So I was using it, but they weren't. There were a lot of complaints from the PE teachers that I wasn't following protocol. Well, I had just done a sabbatical. And when I went to the, the meetings, this is where I know the athletic director was actually involved in it. There were two male PE teachers, Aiden Daly and Eric Brown. And and then Ham and L, so three. Eric participated the least, but Ham and, and Hayden were horrible to me. We would have these meetings that bring something up and they'd laugh and they'd make fun of me or they'd shoot me down. And it was kind of a joke. And I would look at Steve Mello, the other director who's facilitating the meeting and look at him like, what's going on here? I realize I'm the only health teacher here, but hello, you know, where's my voice here? Because we really, the year before we had been with science, health was considered a science class. So it was wonderful. I sat in with the biology teachers and the chemistry teachers, and it was a much more professional setup. So Gene Connolly, I'm quite sure, worked with Chris Rath to switch it over this way, got Dave Mello involved. And now that's permission for Ham and Hayden and to some extent Eric to just be jerks. And they were. And if I complained, I was considered whiny, speaking out of turn and not being a cooperative person. During this time, I also had a teacher's aide in my classroom. He was there to help a student, but all he did was read his paper. He had a newspaper up in front of his face. And so I said to him, do you want to participate? He was somebody that would then report back to Gene Connolly and to another assistant principal, Ben Green, who had taught me violin years prior. It was just horrifying. And so I started getting in trouble for using profanity in health class. Well, if you've ever listened to... PE teachers scream and yell at their kids at Memorial Field or at football practice or wrestling practice. My use of profanity was not even on that level. Did, did I drop an F-bomb in health class? Yes, I did. And I had for years and no parent, I had never had a complaint. One of my things was there's a big difference between making love and fucking in health class when we talked about relationships. This teaching assistant in my class, he was behind a newspaper. I started getting these complaints that I was using the F-bomb, which I did, you know, talking about relationships. Okay, you can't teach health and talk about vaginas and not have words come up in class. And I also wanted my students to be comfortable. So let me say, for seven years of teaching health and having my now famous vagina week, I was now getting complaints about my inappropriate use of the word vagina. So I would get called down to the office. I'd get an email from Lisa Lamb, the secretary. Dean wants to see you after school today. So I would let the union rep know. And then the union rep would come down. And then one time I was down there and Kim wasn't down there. And I said, I can't meet with you until she comes down. And Dean goes, this is quick, no big deal. I had five or six different meetings. And every meeting was something else I'm doing wrong or another complaint. You were late. You weren't doing your duty. I was doing everything that I was told I wasn't. It was horrifying. I didn't understand at all what was happening to me. Also what would happen interspersed with these 
meetings with Jean, criticizing me. One time I was walking out to my car and I had to say to him, look, leaving before 305 because I have a doctor's appointment. See, here it is on my phone. And he goes, Barbara, don't worry about it. It's okay. It's okay. We have appointments. But I just want to let you know, I'm really proud of you. You're really doing a good job. And he wouldn't look me in the face when he said this to me. He's looking straight ahead. And I'm like, you know that I love teaching here. I love my job. I love everything I'm doing. I love teaching here. I'm sorry. You know, I don't know why this is all happening. Of course, he knew and he was a part of it. This went on for a long time. And so finally, we got to the end of October. So all of September and October were weekly complaints about something new I was doing wrong. And maybe bi-weekly or every three weeks, reassurance meeting. You're doing great. We love that you're doing this. We just want to notice this. And I write a book about this. I'll have all the documentation. I have never had the wherewithal to sit down, but yeah, I'm just frustrated. So at this time I was very, very frustrated and just wigged out. So my last full day of teaching actually wasn't even a full day. It was a Friday. It was Friday, October 30th. I had this yellow dress on with flowers. I remember clearly I have a period open and I'm checking my email and there's the email from Lisa Lamb that Jean wants to see me after school. And so I started to cry. And so I call and I'm like, Lisa, what, what does this mean? Can you please put Jean on the phone and send him up? And I'm crying. So now she's nervous and afraid. So I hang up the phone and I'm just crying. It's a free period. So Jean comes running up and he brings the Southern Union rep with him and come to the nurse's office. And I was just so upset, but they really made me sound like I was crazy, like crazy. They called Kenny. Kenny was bending and he had to return to Concord and come. I'm like, what? I was so angry. I was just so frustrated and angry. So I just, I just said, look, I'll just, Kenny, go back to work. I looked at Jean Connolly like, what are you doing? I said, I'm just so scared. I'm just scared. What was happening to me? And he looks at me and he goes, are you worried we're going to suspend you? I'm like, yes, I, I don't know what I'm worried about. What's going on? And he brought that up. So I went home that Friday. So we had a big Halloween party in our barn that weekend. Sunday was Halloween. Monday's November 1st, 2010. Before school, I have to meet. So I go to Dewey School, the superintendent's office, which is my third grade classroom. And sitting there is Chris. And in the meantime, every time I had accused of something wrong, she would ask me to provide information. And I did. And I had a really messed up booster club and I had ordered all this clothing and hadn't collected money. And so I couldn't do a reorder. So I hadn't returned the money. And, but I gave all my bank statements to the new coaching people because I thought it was a one-year thing. I'd be back. Why have a new booster club? So then they said, we'll just start a new booster club. And I said, then give me everything back. And so I gave everything back. So when I sat there in that meeting at the head of this table and Jean Collins on my left, it was like 10 people. And it was just one after one, all these reasons why I should be fired. And that they distraught with me and everything else. And at the end of this meeting, I went back to school, had my last day of school, the very last week before grades closed. I had no idea what was going on. That night, I had a therapy appointment next to with Judy, and I went to therapy. When I'm driving home, my phone rings, my cell phone, and I look at it, and it's a 224 number, and I answer it, and it's Chris Rath. I'm like, hi, what, what's up? And she goes, I'm just letting you know that you're suspended. And I'm like, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything. What are you doing? And I just fought for myself, and she, and she said, you just need to not show up at school. And I never, I never taught a class for the Concord School District again after that day. So I'm going to stop here because what happened was July 2009, I'm in this amazing place. Full year 2009, 2010, I get swallowed into one of the most romantic experiences of my life, one of the most terrifying experiences of my life, all connected to Roy and Haney and me seeing a side of him I didn't know existed, this wonderful romantic side. And also getting sucked into a drama that had nothing to do with me. And I should, should have just never, ever, ever offered to help and agreed to going to court and sitting in court. I realize now 
it was a pissing match. You know, he saw me with her, his restraining order hearing, and now she gets to see me with him at all these divorce hearings. And, and when I look at what I now know of their relationship and how they function, I realize now I was just, I was like a silver ball in a pinball machine back and forth. So I go through that year and now it's 2010 in the summer. My marriage is really struggling now. Kenny's not stupid. He sees something is wrong. I'm knee deep. The divorce is finalized. Roy doesn't get half of what he thought he should get. He's so mad. He can't even see straight. And now he gets me to testify and piss off a superintendent. I think now, knowing that Amy was going to go and complain about me, I just feel now, knowing how much they still communicate and how much they still share with each other to this day, that that was all he knew about it. Maybe not the details of it, but I think he knew about it. And it was this decimation of everything. He once said to me early on, I'll never forget it. We were just deciding we're we going to really take the leap and begin a relationship. And he said, you know, if you choose me, you'll lose everything. And I thought he was just being... I remember thinking it was an odd statement. And it's also a very common statement in situations like mine that I've, that I've really researched. When I woke up Tuesday morning, November 2nd, didn't have to go to school because my job was now not mine for a while. I remember that re-echoing in my head that I would lose everything and I didn't know what to do. And I remember calling him and saying, I've been suspended. I think I'm going to lose my job. I'm right here. I'll fight with you. I'll help you fight. And that's like the next chunk. So this whole episode is July of 2010 to November 1st of 2010. And in those three months and a couple of weeks, everything was just gone for me. And I didn't even know what to think. Yeah, it was horrifying. You know, there are very, very judgmental people that would say, I deserved this. I had it coming. Well, perhaps I did. Married people shouldn't sleep with other people. But Amy and Roy were married and Barb and Ken were married. And we slept with each other. So... Amy had a relationship with Bob. She was still married for a full year of that relationship. You know, if you want to follow Christian philosophy, she shouldn't have moved Bob into her house. That would go against everything she claimed she believes. And Roy used to be very judgmental of me, but he was sleeping with somebody else's wife and I was sleeping with someone else's husband. So do you see in this, in this dance, if you want to be judgmental, there's plenty to judge. I should never have entered into the relationship. Does it mean I deserved what happened to me as punishment? Maybe I've been addicted to judgmental people and mama was coming to me. But I wasn't the only person making this decision. This wasn't a dance I did by myself. One of my favorite lessons in health is how different the rules are for boys and girls and men and women when it comes to sex and relationships, that we have different roles that we're expected to play. And the same action can be viewed very differently depending on if a girl did it and a boy did it. And it's one of the things that infuriates me about assigning value to gender. We could all be treated the same, regardless of our gender. So this is where I was. I was beside myself. As always, be good to yourself. And that includes what decisions you make. Then be good to someone else. And as always, after listening to all of this, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and to share my stories with your friends please reach out with your own stories. I love connecting with my listeners. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at Barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.